Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. On this week's episode, I'm excited to welcome a guest whose work has married his love of horror, cinema, and comics into one delightful and frightful package. The creator of the popular indie comics character Ratboy, he's also created such titles as Fairy's Tale, The Goth Queen Needs a Mate, and Cinephilia, a comic that bridges the gap between criticism and art. Recently, he's been working on the horror comic anthology Theater of Terror, Revenge of the Queers, serving as editor and contributor. A prolific talent, please welcome to the show writer, artist, and film critic, William O. Tyler. Thank you. Welcome, welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to kind of dig into all of this. I love, uh, you know, that your approach to horror is uh, most frequently through the world of comic books. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, I really want to dig into that. But before we even get there, why don't we start the show the same way I start every show with the same first question I ask every guest. And it is simply this. Why horror? And you can interpret that however you want. Why are you drawn to horror? Why do you think audiences love it? But why horror? Well, um, I'm a fan of the show, so I knew this question was coming. <laughs> I, I already listened to the show. Um, it's it's interesting that I have not, I was not always into horror, like as a, a kid. I mean, I, I liked movies like Gremlins and and Disney villains, of course, um, probably were my gateway into horror. But for a long time, I was I was that kid that would show up at, at a, like a Halloween party. And if you were wearing the right mask, I would just scream bloody murder and, and cry the entire time. Like I, <laughs> I could not take Freddy Krueger posters or anything. Everything just frightened me. So um, but then I slowly got into it. I think there was like a, a segue where I was watching. I, I think I went from I, I graduated from Gremlins to like Killer Clowns and then to like the 80s blob or something like that. And so there was a segue and then I eventually worked up to Freddy. Um, and I think it was because I think I initially got into horror because I loved fantasy already. Um, but this idea of, of like um, being able to see emotions, I think fear, fear and those kind of things show up in, in horror more than other places. And that was, you know, you don't really get to see that kind of um, visceral type of, of of filmmaking or, or visual things in, in other kind of genres. So I think it's it's just that that, you know, maybe I, I was working through my fantasy and that kind of thing. Um and and horror just was a step up from that. It's interesting because you're not the first guest to discuss the idea of the bridge between fantasy and horror. Yeah. You know, there uh, there's this sort of, especially if you're a kid of the 80s, things like Return to Oz yes, or uh, yes. Labyrinth and Dark Crystal, Legend. They all are in the realm of fantasy, but there are elements of horror to them. Yes. And I would argue that Legend is even more of a horror movie than uh, a fantasy story. It's just a horror film with a fantasy setup. I would agree with that. I mean... You get characters like Lord of Darkness and um, Meg's Mucklebone. She's like one of my favorites. And, and just her popping up out of the water is just like, as a kid, you're into the fantasy of it. But when she comes up or when Lord of Darkness comes up, you're just like, you get those little shivers, but right. you kind of love it at the same time. Like they creep you out. Um, but then you're into it. And so then you go looking for more of that. And it's kind of a kind of a gateway. Yeah. So I and I, I can definitely see it. And I think there are some folks who would also agree that horror in its way is also dark fantasy, yeah. especially with regard to monsters and kind of the more paranormal slashers, maybe not so much. Right. But the idea of Freddy being this entity that exists in the realm of dreams, that that is a fantastical element. Yes. Uh, so I, I like that that was sort of your gateway. But you also <laughs> mentioned gremlins and killer clowns from outer space. Yeah. And uh, I view those as horror movies, but I guess there's that element of comedy that well, makes I, them safer, right? Yeah, I think comedy and also because um, um, I also worked for a long time as a puppeteer. So I've always been into puppets and animatronics and that kind of thing. And I think having, as a kid being into the Muppets and all of those, uh, it was easier for me to watch movies like Gremlins or Killer Clowns because it's so specifically not real. Like, I I knew that they were created characters that were being controlled by someone else. Right. Um, so it wasn't quite like Freddy running at me with, with you know, his claws. Right. Um, but I guess I was, I was more into watching um, how things were created. Um, and so I was not as uh, fearful of it because I knew it was an art to it. I mean, there's an art to all of it. But as a kid, you know that that's, you know, puppetry and, and that kind of thing um, is a different kind of art to it. 
You know, I've had guests on the show before who have worked in the world of stop motion, but I don't mm-hmm. know that I've ever had anyone who's worked with puppets. Oh, really? Uh, tell me a little bit about that. What, was this something that you started on young, or was this just part of your, your career I, trajectory? Well, like a lot of things in my career, I kind of happened to pundit by accident. <laughs> um, I was working at uh, Disneyland um, just as an attractions, you know, person pushing buttons to make the rides go. And they had an audition for a puppeteer for one of their shows. And I was like, oh, that could be cool. That could be more fun than pushing this button. <laughs> <laughs> so I went to the audition, not really thinking that I would get it. And I think like there were 30 people that showed up to the audition and they ended up hiring six people out of that 30. And I was one of them. And I was and I had never really I mean, I had puppets as a kid and had played with puppets Um and knew puppetry from watching all these movies and the Muppets and such. Um, so I kind of knew how it worked, but this was the first professional anything that I had done with puppets. And and I guess it was rough going in, but I, I worked there. I did that show for them for 10 years. Wow. So, so by the end of it, I was I was a pretty good professional puppeteer. <laughs> yeah, that, 10 years is a lot of time That's with a puppets. long time, yeah. Uh, so... Let's talk. You said a lot of the things that you've done uh, are things that you kind of wandered into. Yeah. So let's talk about the beginnings. Growing up, your interest in creativity. Uh, I'm assuming, even though you came to horror later, mm-hmm. you probably were always a comic fan. Is it right to assume that or no? I pretty early on there were. I mean, I remember. I think the first comics I actually got were some of those comics that were like giveaways at school. Mm-hmm. So there wasn't something that I. Um, initially sought out so I guess in a way that's a kind of like happened upon um my sister who's older than I am um was into comics before me she was really into like uh Elf Quest by Winnie Penny was was I think her favorite so I started to read her comics and it wasn't until like maybe um well I, w- I was into like the Batman 60s show and stuff like that I got to watch on reruns and when Batman the movie, the 89 movie, and then Batman Returns came out, I really got into Batman. And probably probably the first time that I went and sought out comics for myself was in 92 when Catwoman's solo series started. It was just after Batman Returns came out, and I was obsessed with the character Catwoman. And so I actually went to the, the comic store and bought my first comic myself in 92. So, I mean, even that is, I was, by that point, in my teens... So it wasn't something that I, I kind of was always into as a kid. But once I got into it, I got into it hard. Like, it was it was hardcore. And so Batman Returns was sort of kind of the impetus, with Catwoman especially. Yes. Well, there's something so delicious about Michelle Pfeiffer's yes. Catwoman. <laughs> uh, and I do notice, especially, you know, all these years on, there's still sort of an attraction to that character, especially amongst, like, queer men. Yes. Uh and I, I have always loved Batman Returns. Like it's one of those. I, I, I want to go so many places with this conversation. It's a movie. <laughs> it's a movie we haven't talked about ever in the history of Dead for Filth. Really? But I know. It's like I'm maybe it fits. I mean, it's not necessarily horror, but it has elements of it, and it definitely fits that that what this show is. Absolutely, I think it's horror. Uh, it's a horror adjacent, or it's, yes. a, it's a gateway movie, as we yes. were discussing before, because there's something about Batman Returns to me. I mean, if I've ever mentioned on the show before is probably in passing as saying it's like my favorite Christmas movie or something. It's mine. Gremlins and Batman Returns are my go-to Christmas movies. And what a a creepy gothic double feature for your (laughs) holiday treats. Uh, But that's exactly it. Of all the Batman movies that exist, and there are many, uh, and each director and filmmaker who sort of approaches them puts their own spin on it. Mm -hmm. But what there's something about Batman Returns, when I think about it, it's definitely a Tim Burton movie first yes. and a Batman movie second. Yes. And the Gotham City of that movie is so horrific <laughs> and bizarre and weird. Yeah. And the idea that everything's sort of like this hyper insane horror movie version of it. It's all gray. Yeah. I don't know. I I just love love the curation of that film. And it's sort of like every character is a drag queen. Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> because everybody embodies this intense otherness. Like yes. That's sort of like yeah. the draw to Catwoman. It's like sexuality on her sleeve and like taking no shit from the oppressive men who have been putting her down. Yes. Uh, but I think there's also 
it, the older we get, the more I appreciate Danny DeVito as Penguin. <laughs> because he maybe is like the most like well, that, other character of all of them. Yeah, that entire cast. I mean, even Christopher Walken, who is, you know, he's not like a, he's not playing a, a Batman rogues known character. But just his inclusion in that and being named Max Shrek, who is, you know, the actor who played Nosferatu. I mean, yeah. that's who he's named after. It's it's totally horror, yeah. It's <laughs> Danny DeVito. I, I love the the scene where he um, bites the guy's nose off. That's just like such a classic, iconic moment. <laughs> it's such a gore moment too. I, I was uh, I was probably like eleven or twelve when that movie came out, yeah. and that scene like jarred me. Like that's not when you're a kid what you expect right. going to see a Batman movie to all of a sudden have the penguin just take a meaty bite <laughs> out of someone's face. Uh, but but did you, when that happened, were you like uh, scared of it or did you like giggle? Because I giggled and I was just like, oh, that's awesome. Uh, I was scared of it, to be, for, <laughs> to, to be totally honest. Um, but I am very much on record that there was sort of a period of my life where, like you, like you yeah. said, I was very much... Uh, a scaredy cat mm-hmm. until I had this sort of come around moment where I became sort of obsessed with the things I was scared of. Yes, yep, and then, that's exactly how it goes. Yeah, it's true. I, and I, I think that's really interesting about the trajectory of a lot of creators who come to the horror space. Like you said, you didn't even want to be bothered with horror, and now you're <laughs> like really in, immersed in it. I'm really immersed. In it. I mean, it's it's my. If I had to pick um, as a cinephile, as a self diagnosed cinephile, if I had to pick my favorite genres, it would be horror and animation those are like and they're very extreme sometimes they go together but they're very extreme when you think of animation usually has the stereotype of being for children and in horror is what we try to keep away from children as a society um so it's funny that those are my my two extremes now from a cinephile's perspective what is it about horror that that draws you i know i asked why horror but this is a little different because it's more from the critical lens um it's I just think it's the most fun. I think I think it has the most opportunities to um, tackle what's happening in society, like our 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 cultural woes, if you you can can call it that. Um, it can tackle social stuff. It can tackle personal stuff. It can tackle all kinds of things, but but do it in a way that's still fun and entertaining. It's not like a you can tackle those things in other genres, but then it, it, they usually become very heavy and dramatic and depressing. And you can do this, you know, you can look at those themes in horror and still make it like something exciting and you come out of it not as hopeless, but, you know, feeling that, oh, that was cool. But still have this this consciousness about it. I, I practice something that I like to call um, conscious escapism. Conscious escapism. Because I I watch a lot of movies as a a cinephile. um, And I, even though I'm self-diagnosed as a cinephile, I use this website called Letterboxd to, like, um, keep a diary of everything I watch. So I I have the receipts of of how many movies I watch per year. (laughs) It's quite a lot. Um, And when you're escaping into media that much, it can be dangerous because you're not really paying attention to the world around you as much. So I, I have developed something that I like to call conscious escapism where I'm, I'm watching movies, but from a point of view where um, what I'm seeing in the movies, I specifically relate them to what's happening in the real world right. and, and try to pick up lessons from movies about how we can better things. Well, and that's, you know, really a goal of the show is to talk about that sort of coupling and the marriage, the, yeah. the catharsis or the understanding of other. Now, you mentioned the idea that horror movies do have that power yeah. to speak uh, to things that normally uh, society does not necessarily want to face if it's put in front of them directly. Do you think for you as a queer creator that part of the draw is that, the idea that you can utilize genre as a means to uh explore these things that maybe oh definitely um it's interesting that a lot of my work as a comic creator most of my comics deal with um the entanglement how can i put this the way that the the themes of love and death work together Mm -hmm. um and they they've always been that way like my my first comic the goth queen needs a mate is all about this this pure loving couple um who one of them dies um and the woman who becomes the goth queen she becomes the goth queen by 
going into mourning because of that her her spouse has died um and she kind of uh goes so deep into mourning that when she screams she awakens gargoyles who have to go out and find a new mate for her because she doesn't want to be lonely um and it's it's interesting that they even that as my first comic was about the themes of love and death um but i find that i was kind of writing about something that i found interesting but had not necessarily experienced yet um and then i eventually ended up having that experience because my partner of 13 years died um i guess it was about five years ago and so i then had this experience that i had already been writing about and realized that oh it's completely different than how how I've been kind of uh, writing it from a romantic point of view where right. what I was feeling then was more nihilistic. <laughs> is it so it, it changes a bit. I was going to say, is it difficult for you to go back and look at that early work now with that knowledge? Um, it's not difficult, but there are things that I would change about it. In fact, um, it's been 15 years since that book came out this year. It's kind of a the 15th year anniversary. So I actually... And planning after I finish this this current theater of terror book that I'm working on, uh, the next project I want to do is to revisit that first book and kind of update it because um, there are some other things that I would change about it. It's, I'm I'm queer and black, and that first book was actually told from like the two main characters are heterosexual and white. So right. um, and a couple of the gargoyles who are side characters in it. I did write as queer. Um, they there are two gargoyles that end up kind of in a in a relationship as well. But I I kind of want to go back and and tell that story more from the gargoyles' point of view, so I can have that queerness be more blatant, um, and also tackle like some of the issues that I was dealing with as far as as why as a black queer man I was writing heterosexual white characters. <laughs> That's how I felt that I needed to go at the time. Where now it's completely different. Yeah, that's that's a very interesting yeah. uh, thing to consider. And I'm wondering, do you think that because that was your first foray into the world of comic books, you felt that you couldn't authentically present the sort of characters you wanted to, so you had to do that? Or was it this wasn't just... it wasn't even like I wasn't even that conscious about it at the time. I think it was because comic books at the time, what I was reading were heterosexual white people, so I probably subconsciously thought that this is what would sell like if i write this this is what would sell um where now i'm just like i don't even care what <laughs> sells i want to tell my stories you know right um so yeah there's a there's a lot of reason to go re and revisit that story well so we're talking uh about your first comic book yeah. and the sort of change of, of your own direction and the way you present stories from the time it was written uh, but let's go back a little bit before that, because we mentioned that you got y your first comics probably from school and your yeah. sister was reading comic books. When did you yourself, beyond, you know, going out and seeking out Catwoman after Batman <laughs> Returns came out, decide that, you know, this is something I'm really into and maybe want to do myself? I didn't actually. This is another one of those things where I kind of happened into it. I didn't actually set out to make comics. Um, I went to school for film. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, like just just the way my brain works, and and I I think in movie like I always have. Um, so I went to school for film, thinking that I would get into film, and then out of school, I ended up making comics by accident because I saw comics as um, basically storyboarding. Right. So I was I I started making comics to storyboard the stories that I wanted to tell in film. Um and then I just ended up getting into comics and and continuing to make comics. But initially I wanted to these were all stories that I wanted to make movies of and I found that that putting a comic out there was one a lot cheaper than <laughs> making a movie. Um so it was easier to to figure out what I wanted to do with these stories in comics. Now, do you still have a desire to make movies? I do, but I, 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 I think that I've been away from filmmaking, um, you know, being behind the camera so long that I'm kind of intimidated to get back into it. Right. Um, I think if I had the opportunity, I would. But right now, it's just um, I'm so 
into the flow or the groove of, of making comics and, and doing um, visual art and, and paintings and, and that kind of thing that way that it's just what comes naturally to me now. I still think, even when I'm, I'm making a comic, I still think in movies and in, in cinematography, like the way I, I line up things in my comics is very much, oh, this would make a great shot in a movie. I still think that way. But um, finding, I think, the time and the money and the energy to go make a movie is is daunting. <laughs> and you, you not only write, but you illustrate as yes. well. And uh, when did you discover that that was also part of your skill set? I always was drawing, like, as a kid, even mm-hmm. before I got into, um, you know, thinking about what I wanted to do as an adult. Um, so I think illustrating actually came before writing. Um, I think illustrating was always there. Um, I, I think that I'm a better writer than I am an illustrator. Like, I, I see everyone else's art, and I'm like, oh, that's cool. I wish I could do that. But I think that I've been been drawing longer than I, I figured out that I could write. So here you are, you realize that comics are a way to tell the stories that you want to tell. Mm-hmm. Uh, from that first book, The Goth Queen Needs a Mate, to uh, some of these other p- projects that you publish, then you're contributing to other people's work. Yes. Uh, and tell me about Rat Boy. Well, Rat Boy is, is based on the partner who passed. So... Um, <laughs> the reason that this character is so popular is because I, I created him uh, for a comic, but had not actually written a, a comic yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and he just, he liked the, the creation so much um, that he made a costume and started dressing as Rat Boy at conventions. So whenever I would sign, or, you know, I'd be at uh, comic conventions signing with the Prism Comics table. Um, uh, my other work he would be there just running around as Rat Boy to kind of like bring people over to the table. <laughs> and so Rat Boy became popular because not because I had written the character, but because I had created the character, but he took it upon himself to just run around a convention dressed as him. And who doesn't love a giant furry rat? Like it's <laughs> 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 So he would he would get all the attention, yeah. And he'd bring everyone over to the table. So Rat Boy really has sort of like grassroots origins in the like truest of ways. Yeah, totally. So when he when he passed, I decided I still had not written a Rat Boy comic yet when he passed. Um so I decided in tribute of him, I would actually finally put out a little Rat Boy comic and I did. And it was like a, a limited edition comic of like fifty issues. Um and it was horror themed. It was all about uh a costume party on Halloween um and how he kind of fit into this this whole world as a, a furry rat. Um and Every every issue was also um, a blank cover. I did a, an original cover sketch, and so there are like fifty copies of this comic out there in the world that have like Rat Boy sketched along with some horror icon character, horror movie icon character um, out there in the world. Yeah, I have uh, from one of the conventions in the past uh, a Rat Boy that you drew with uh, Edgar Allan Poe. That's right. Yeah. I totally forgot about that. I totally forgot that you got one. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that sketch now that you mentioned it. <laughs> yes, I uh, I have it in a very safe and, and protected place in my home. <laughs> oh, thank you. Uh, so, no, that's really amazing. I didn't know that Rat Boy's origins were uh, predating, really, the comic in such such an interesting way. Yeah. Uh, because I think that was around the time I met you is when you were doing the comic book. Yes, yes. No, so that's it, right? We met at Comic-Con, and uh, Comic-Con seems to be a regular presence on both of our calendars. Yes. Uh, in fact, I was going to pitch this at the end of the show, but I might as well bring it up now. Uh, you will be returning to San Diego Comic-Con this year. Yep, I will. Uh, I know that I know because I'm, I'm hosting it, but you're going to be on the queer horror panel with me. Yes, thank you for inviting me. I'm excited to have you on. Uh, but you're also doing uh, some other panels and, and stuff there, too. Tell me about that. Yeah, I'm also doing, this will be, mm, I don't know if it's the third or fourth, but uh, I'm kind of a regular on the queer black diversity panel um, as well. So yeah, I'll be I'll be joining that one again too. It's exciting. It's a great panel too. I, uh, yeah, it is. It's, I mean, it's, and it's nice to see, um, having been on the panel so many times in a year, it's nice to see the progression of what's happening in media and in comics and in film uh, with queer black stories right. and how things have, have changed since I first started being on the panel to now. 
No, I attended the panel uh, just you know, to watch it in the audience last year, and I just the the conversation that was had is just so powerful. Yeah, and um, so needed. And it's like the I, I'm very grateful that San Diego Comic Con International understands the need for panels like queer and black or the discussion of queer horror or just general lgbtqia or uh, poc uh, panels because even though in the geek space the the notion that geeks are marginalized in society Mm -hmm. when you look at something like comic-con which is so vastly huge in a pop culture behemoth that there's like two hundred and fifty thousand people in attendance (laughs) over like four days this this idea that there are still people struggling to have their voices heard in the art yeah is 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 so it's still prevalent we have to we have to speak up and i'm glad they give us the platform to do that yeah comic-con has been very good about um their inclusion and representation and all of that they i mean they continuously invite us back to to talk about these topics and i believe Maybe I shouldn't be quoted on this, but I, I want to say that the um, Queers and Comics panel that Prism puts on every year is the oldest panel at Comic-Con. I believe it's been going for over 20 years. So it was it, it was pretty early added to Comic-Con's stable of, of panels. Um, I mean, it's been going longer than Prism has existed, for sure. Well, so. well, even if it's not the oldest, the fact that it's been going on for 20 years in a landscape, because, you know, you do other conventions. Yeah. Uh, in a landscape of convention culture where it seems like some are still catching up to right. the idea of having queer discussions. Yeah. I was on a panel at a convention last year in 2018 <laughs> that I won't, I mean, you know, I'm not going to put them on blast. So I'm not going to say what show it was. Right. But they wanted to do a discussion of uh, queer horror. But then somebody at the convention did not want to use the word queer in the programming guide or mm-hmm. the, uh, you know, any of the advertisements. Right. So then they wanted to call it, I think, something like a gay horror discussion. But then that's problematic because we were talking about more, more than, than just, just gay, gay yeah. issues. So then it was sort of like I remember that I was o- I was only a panelist, but I remember watching all of this like drama unfold in my right. email inbox. And I remember the the host and curator of that particular panel was getting frustrated because then he tried to make it an LGBTQ plus uh, panel and they didn't want to put the Q in because it brought the blah blah See, blah. So this is something that I've been noticing and something that I want to tackle more in my work is this idea that the word itself queer is even within the LGBT if you're not including Q it's ridiculous to me but even within within our smaller subculture um, the word queer is now being seen as not a good word like it's it's so bizarre to me because I, I guess there are people who believe that queer uh, represents this idea of not being normal or or being a freak or something like that. Where um, I'm I'm quite okay not being within what heteronormative society would label as as right. normal. Like I don't I don't want to be heteronormative. Like I'm not heteronormative. So I'm I'm the word queer works for me. I've actually started using the word queer to describe myself instead of gay because I feel like there are some other things going on there that aren't just gay. Like, Well, it's it's weird institutionalization of a group that's already marginalized, right, too, which right. I've never understood. I, I like the word queer. I mean, I say it at the top of every show. This yeah. is a podcast for all things queer, horror, yes. and beyond. Yes. Because I believe that. Because this show isn't just about gay men in horror. Right. It's not just about lesbians in horror. Right. It is about a vast spectrum of people. And sometimes the people who are othered or creating in this space aren't necessarily fit into any of those boxes. Yeah. And I don't want to. And right. I also so I, I, I love the word queer and I I do understand that generationally uh, before us, it was used in a, a more derogatory way for a, a, a certain generation. Right. But it's sort of like reclaiming the exactly. word. Exactly. Yeah. I love this idea of reclaiming words. And I, I think that, um, you know, as, as a black guy, you know, we have a history of reclaiming words. And I feel like uh, other um, marginalized groups um, 
can do the same. Like queer is is totally that. I mean, there are, there are other words that we reclaim. I'm not going to say them on the show, but 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 <laughs> thank and, you. But in our in our subculture, we reclaim them and we use them in positive ways when we reclaim it. So I feel like queer is is much of the same. Yeah, and there's also this thing where uh, I I hear people complain when the acronym grows. Yeah. They'll be just like, oh, we're just keep adding letters to the acronym, and I'm like, why let, not? Why not? Let's yeah. add as many as possible because. The whole idea to me of this spectrum is that there's always more to discover and more to learn. And maybe we're now finally getting to talk about things culturally we never could. Yes. I, as a proud member of this community, keep adding letters. Yes. I want. I'm with you. I want LGBTQIA plus like whatever makes someone feel like they are finally represented. Yeah. Let's keep going. I think more than than the Q, I... I feel weird adding the plus because instead of the plus, I want to just put all the letters. I don't want. Yeah. I don't want the plus. I mean, I the plus is welcome, yeah. obviously, because I don't. I don't know everyone's experience, and so until I learn your experience, I'm going to put the plus because I still want you to feel welcome. Exactly. But once I learn your experience, then I want your letter to be there, like blatantly there. Yeah, everybody belongs. Yes, that's how I feel. <laughs> uh, so look at this—a a sidebar I of love adventure. This. <laughs> um, so let's talk a little bit about this new project of yours, the Theater of Terror, Revenge of the Queers. Oh, it's so good. Because it's so much what we're all about here. Yes. Uh, and it is a horror anthology project mm-hmm. that you uh, you are a co-editor of. Yes. Uh, and you're also doing... Uh, I also have two stories within it, but but this is the, the first time on, on this level that I've worked as an editor. So it's it's quite new and and awesome for me. And you're working with a lot of different queer creators who are telling queer horror stories that are part of this anthology. Yep. And in a very interesting uh, turn of events, it's a comic book that's still hosted by Peaches Christ. <laughs> it is. She's kind of like our, our crypt keeper. Um, so, so the comic was initially Peaches' idea because she does this um, horror event every October. The Terror Vault. Yes. Yes. So she does this every October, and, and she was thinking, how cool would it be to have a, a comic to sell there? Like, or, or you know, to do these these queer horror stories um, to have available at this event to kind of tie into, you know, what the event, event represents. So she approached um, Justin Hall, who is a, a big name in queer comics. Um, he edited and put together um, a book called No Straight Lines, which is a history of, of queer comics um, in general. Mm-hmm. And he's also currently working on a documentary based on that book. Um, but she she approached him about creating an anthology of, of queer horror comics. And and he initially, you know, started the, 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 the process of creating this book by reaching out to certain creators and inviting them to do it. And I was one of the creators that he invited to um, actually do a story for. And uh, the so the first story that I'm doing for the book is actually a, a collaborate, collaboration between uh, myself and my partner, Dave Davenport, who is also a, a, a queer horror comic artist. Um, and he and Dave and Justin Hall had worked together previously on a book called Hard to Swallow, um, which is pretty well known within the queer comics community. Um, and so, so you know, we had gotten started on that one story, and then I get a, a phone call from Justin a little later. Um, it's like, you know, this is going to be a, a, a big book, a bigger book than I might have um, initially thought, and I need a, an editor to work on this with me, and I know that you're into horror, like horror is your thing, so come do this with me. And I was like, oh, hell yeah. <laughs> And so what can readers expect from an anthology of queer horror hosted by Peaches Christ? I mean, it, there's there's so much in there. Um, the creators that we have involved are incredible. And they, they run the gamut from, from mainstream comic creators. Like we have um, Cena Grace and uh, Mar- Mariko Tamaki, who have both worked for Marvel and DC Comics. Um, but then we have a lot of uh, independent creators as well. Um, Maya Kobe, who just recently put out their um, book about genderqueer, like an autobiographical book about being genderqueer. Um, they're doing a story uh, with Rachel Pollock, who is um, a, a legendary comic writer 
um, who worked on Invisible Invisibles for DC Vertigo way back in the day, um, and that in itself is a, a queer title as well. Um, and there are just so many like, and there there's such diversity in the stories. Like we have gay male stories, we have lesbian stories, we have trans stories. Like there's just so much in this book. I'm so excited for it. <laughs> I can't wait. Now I do understand that as of the time of this recording, you're still doing a Kickstarter campaign for it. Yes, it is currently on Kickstarter, and it will be on Kickstarter until June 16th, I believe. So we're about halfway through the Kickstarter, and we've got. Um, more than half of, of what we're asking for for the book. Um, but yeah, if you guys are, are listening to this and, and want to pitch in before the, the Kickstarter is over, it's that if you go to northwestpress.com slash Kickstarter, that's the easiest way to, to get to it and, and check out all the, the rewards there. The book's going to be great. Now, is the plan then to have the book out by this October when the new Terror Vault unleashes yes. in San Francisco? So I, I believe... What we've decided is uh, that the book will premiere at FlameCon, which is a queer convention, comic convention in New York in August. And then we'll go straight into uh, Terra Vault for October. Now, were you able to go to Terra Vault last year? I've never been. I've ne- so it's, it's what's interesting is I've never been to that, and I would love to go. I've also never actually met Peaches. No, we, it's all been through email, um, and she's been great to work with. Right, but I've never, I have not met her in person. No, I I loved uh, the small synergy of the the world because Peaches uh, is uh, not only a friend of the show but a very dear friend of mine. Yeah. And uh, you and I had talked about this project. You reached out to mention some things about it. And uh, I was like, oh, my God. I was like, what a small (laughs) world that uh, you I know from the world of comics and Comic-Con and Peaches I just know from from my life. Right. (laughs) And uh, it's, it's just so cool to see queer artists and creators coming together to create something uh new i mean yeah. the idea of of uh of a crypt keeper hosted comic book has has existed in the world before but we've never seen it in the queer space right and i love you know of course peaches christ makes of course sense. it's yes, so yeah. perfect yeah she's perfectly cast in this um <laughs> so the yeah the, the the overarching story that connects connects everything also relates to this this podcast because it's about um movies and horror movies right so peaches is um a ghost that's haunting uh the castro theater in san francisco and so a true story yeah so (laughs) so the the stories that are within the different stories that are within this anthology are actually presented in the anthology as queer horror movies that people are watching at the castro theater well, I'm excited. I can't wait. <laughs> well, speaking of uh, movies and the love of movies, yes, that brings me to another of your projects that I wanted to talk about, and it's uh, Cinephilia. Mm-hmm. Now, that particular project is all about kind of the marriage of the love of comic books and film criticism. Yeah. For listeners who are kind of curious what that means, could you explain a little bit about that? Well, I was finding that... Um I was, as I talked about earlier, I watch a lot of movies and I was finding that my escapism was taking away from my time to actually be a comic creator and to actually create. Um, so I was trying to find a way to marriage my my love of movies so I can still be fanboying and going crazy over movies, but still creative and, and, and keeping my working arm, you know, uh, warm. Um, so I, I decided to start a webcomic titled Cinephilia. Uh, that is all about my personal exploration of why I love film and why film is as a art form is important and amazing and how film relates to society and how society relates to film and, and all that kind of thing. So, yeah, it's 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 basically me. I get to draw myself a lot, <laughs> but but me interacting with different um, movie characters and 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 directors and and you know, everything in the movies. Now, tell me a little bit about the Twitch spinoff, though. Yes. So uh, some friends of mine who work for Perception Studio, which is a um, started as a a Twitch channel, but they also do um, puppet creation and and all kinds of of cool stuff. So they're they're a Twitch channel. And initially they had a we're doing a D&D show, Dungeons and Dragons, but with puppets. 
which is yeah. So it's a fascinating a live yeah, yeah. a live D and D stream with puppets, and it's amazing. Um, but they were looking to branch out and 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 create other shows that the their Twitch channel could show as well. And so they reached out to me and was like, they were like, you know, we we like what you're saying in your comics. Um, how would you like to do a talk show? How would you like to to turn cinephilia into a live talk show? So now. I'm doing a live talk show every week on Twitch that is just talking about movies. And, you know, we do movie reviews, but we also do like movie reviews of what's popular right now and what's currently out. But we also do episodes where we just take an old movie we love and just analyze it to death and and talk about why it's so great. And what's interesting is at the top of the show, you were talking about how originally your interest in comic books kind of came from the idea of storyboarding. Yes. And the, the idea of taking what you, you were drawing and putting it onto screen. And in a strange way, <laughs> Cinephilia kind of yeah, made that come true. <laughs> yeah. Except, you know, maybe it's not a movie, but like right. if you're drawing yourself talking about movies <laughs> and it turned into the, the TV, you know, filmed version of you talking about movies i had not actually um considered it that way but that's very true (laughs) so it's like it's it's sort of one it's uh a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way and who knows where it will go from there i think that's really awesome it's been it's been i mean it's always been fun to do the comic but it's really been a lot of fun to do the uh the the twitch show one because i i get to talk about movies that's like my favorite thing but um what's interesting about twitch that I was not expecting is that because it's a live stream with a chat um, that I'm getting all these other perspectives about the movies as well, which is what I love. Like I love everyone being able to have their voice heard, not just mine. Um, So we actually are, our live show is actually interactive with the chat and the chat talks back to us in real time about, you know, the movies we're talking about and what they love as well. I find that very intimidating, by the way. Uh, oh, yeah, it is. Because <laughs> I did uh, a live Dead for Filth last year at Comic-Con. We yeah. did it in partnership with Skybound. So we were, like, we should, like recording live, but they had the screen for me while I was talking. Right. And I could see the chat, like, kind of going up. And it's just so bizarre. It it's is like, bizarre. It's fun, though. It's fun to, like, interact with people while uh, while the conversation's going on. And the people say some really outrageous stuff that I'm like... Yes, they do. It's a, it's <laughs> some, sometimes things scroll by and we're like, I'm not going to address that on air. Um, <laughs> but then, you know, the, the chat is really nice because they'll... If I'm, like brain farting on some detail about a movie then they'll jump right in because they know exactly what I'm talking about so a lot of times the chat will bring in stuff that either I'm forgetting or I didn't even know so it's it's a learning process back and forth no and also truly evidence of the mighty tide of the internet yes (laughs) (laughs) uh so Yes, film criticism and your love of films. This is a natural time to ask you then, what have you seen recently that you're liking and what's inspiring you? Um, what have I seen recently? I'm, I'm very excited because after, I haven't seen it yet, but after I leave here, I'm going to do a double feature of Godzilla and Ma. <laughs> Which I think is so crazy they came out in the same weekend. Right. <laughs> because even though they're both in their way genre films, they don't feel like they could be any more different. Right, exactly. But I, I love this idea of, um, okay, something I've seen recently that I love. I'm just going to say Jordan Peele is doing great, great work for Blacks and Horror, which is such a underrepresented thing. Right. Um, and Us was amazing. And to tie that in with, with Ma, I love that that we have Octavia Spencer, of all people, doing this horror movie. It, you know, horror used to be this thing that um, actors would start off in. Like, they would get their footing or their, their foot into the door in horror, and then they would grow and do other things but now we're we're seeing that horror is has made such an impact that a lot of well-established actors are now coming back to do horror because it's just something they enjoy yeah and i i love 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 the energy she seems to be bringing to this you can tell even from the trailer that she had a great time making this film yeah I have a a couple of friends who have seen it already and they've had mixed things to say about it but they were like octavia spencer is amazing in it and that's that's all i need (laughs) the review that kind of hooked me in and i think this is appealing for uh kids of a certain generation but someone said to me they were like it's like the hand that rocks the cradle oh my god but with octavia spencer i'm sold and i was like already (laughs) that's it 
I love Hannah Roxy Cradle. Me too. And it's weird because I was probably too young to be into that movie. Like I remember watching that movie really, really young, um, and not probably not understanding everything about it until later, watching it later. Um, but something about it was just like, oh, Rebecca De Mornay is. She's unhinged. She, yeah. Unhinged. Yes. Yeah. Like that that scene with her in the bathroom where she's just going off. As a kid, I'm just like, that's not good, but this is so intriguing to watch. Like it's just, it's just Well, it's interesting too, because I feel like, you know, when we talk about the subgenres of horror, and yeah. there are many that you know, there's like, you know, zombies and kaiju and vampires and slashers and blah blah blah. blah. And I love them all. Oh, same. <laughs> but there seems to be that kind of like zenith moment in the mid 90s where there was a subgenre that was for lack of a better de- uh, descriptor like domestic horror yeah and that's th- a good description yeah and they they were thrillers that were slightly kicked up a notch like above like what you could show on lifetime so there was still like gore and insanity right, right. uh that had that like hold for a minute and then we kind of just stopped making them yeah like but the hand that rocks the cradle the crush or uh, single white female. Yeah, yeah. All of these movies about like unhinged ladies, like, <laughs> and th- I loved those. I lived for those movies. So to have someone say that Octavia Spencer is giving like definitive <laughs> hand that rocks the cradle vibes is it's kind of amazing. everything I want. I also, um, and I guess I could, I can see this trajectory in in growing up, but starting off with. Uh, Disney movies, my favorites were always the Disney villainesses. Um, and then growing from that to being obsessed with Catwoman. Right. And then growing from that to... I, Women in horror have always been my favorite. Like, whether whether they're good or bad, but the bad women in horror, I just... I love. Like, one of my favorite movies, horror movies of all time, and I know from listening to the show that that's, this comes up all the time, is Carrie. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Carrie is, I think, the most cited show, uh, cited movie of all time on Dead for Filth. But I think for good reason, because yeah. like there's so much uh, going on there in terms of the queer experience. Mm-hmm. The idea of otherness or just wanting to belong and the bullying aspects and all of the things. And of course, now in the post-Trump America, the fact that PJ Souls wears that stupid red baseball cap just like <laughs> like makes me think oh of like a, a whole different I, things. I hadn't even put that together, but yeah, it's, it, it fits. But what's interesting <laughs> is because you're talking about the villainesses and the sort of like the, the high villainy of, yeah. of uh, women. But, and but Carrie's not quite a villain. Like no, she's, but yeah. Margaret White is. Yes. And yes. I think that Piper Laurie's performance is very much that hand that rocks the cradle. That, oh, like, yes. I'm going to keep yes. my house in order my way. Right. And it's amazing. And I... Uh, Probably the only thing that I really, really loved about the Carrie remake was um, uh, Julianne Moore. Julianne Moore. I do think the casting of the remake was was. But she's well, no Piper Laurie. <laughs> well, it, they're very different. Right. I think that like Piper Laurie uh, in her performance in De Palma's uh, version of Carrie is like acting for the the rafters. Yeah. Like she's just yes. like anyone like whereas you know Julianne Moore's whole school of acting is like she does that kind of like controlled subdued menace. Yeah. And I think that both work. There's just different do reads. Work, yeah. Uh I, I do think the casting of Kimberly Pierce's Carrie uh was was good for the adults. I really like uh the idea of Judy Greer as the teacher as well. Yeah. Um yeah. I uh, well, I'm just a big Judy Greer fan. I, <laughs> I I really think that the more they can uh, put her in things, the better because she is a consummate character. Actress. I agree. I I don't seek out her work, but every time she pops up in a movie, I'm like, oh, she's good. Yeah. Yeah. If anything, what happens is I'll go and see these mega blockbusters and Judy Greer's in it, and they give her like <laughs> some like thankless job where she's like the mom of the kid who gets to go on the adventure. I'm like, Judy Greer's right, right there. Right. Give you her something using, to do. Yes. Yeah. yeah, that's that's the worst when you you know an actor is good and they just aren't aren't put to good use. Right. So this is a question I always ask comics creators uh, when they come on the show. And I know that you your work tends to veer more into horror and social commentary than the, the superheroes of it all. But I do yeah. know you have interest in the world of heroes. Yeah. But... 
before I ask the question, it's interesting that you mentioned your connection to horror also is rooted in Disney villainesses. Mm -hmm. Because one of the things that, you know, we talk about when we discuss the the villainesses of Disney and when it's come up before is the idea of of their heightened presentation. Yes. There is something, for lack of a better term, draggy. Oh, definitely. Oh, most definitely. I mean, Divine is Ursula. Exactly. I mean, they (laughs) they base the designs on on Divine. Right. Uh, And, you know, Maleficent is who more than a drag queen will does not want to be invited to a party, but then <laughs> gets mad if you don't. That's so <laughs> there was there's a group that I'm on uh, on Facebook that that just is all about queer nerdy stuff. Then you know it's memes and it's a lot of fun. Uh, but someone recently posted something like Scar was the uh, there was a meme that said Scar was the Disney villain that went the hardest or something like that. Like he did the most. And then the the reply to it was something about. Um, uh, Maleficent, you know, did her whole shtick because she didn't get invited to the party. Like that's that's a, a going a little harder. And then in the comments, uh, someone was saying, "Well, but Scar is a, a classic character because he's uh, based off of Hamlet, Shakespeare's Hamlet." And I had to rebut. I was like, "Well, Maleficent is based off of Tchaikovsky's Sleeping Beauty." So I mean, you don't get more classic than that. Exactly. <laughs> no, I've always related to Maleficent in the way that I probably don't want to go, but invite me. Yes. Yeah. Like, yeah. That's exactly. Yeah. I mean, all of my friends know I'm not showing up to your party, but you better invite me still. Right. It's just sort of like. Or I'm going to show up and, like, curse your baby. <laughs> Yet I was going to stay at home and binge watch society, but now you have forced me to come out and lay a hex on your entire house. Yeah, Maleficent is is my, my go-to Disney villainess. Um, actually, when I first started self-publishing, my um, company that I, that I created to start self-publishing, the book, um, or the company that I used to put out, The Goth Queen Needs a Mate, right. I titled... Carabos comics and Carabos is the Maleficent character's name in the original Tchaikovsky ballet. So yeah, I'm I'm there with Maleficent from from the beginning. <laughs> well, this is very telling of me in the way that I like to interact with art and like see how it uses social commentary. Uh, he is not my favorite Disney villain, but I think the best Disney villain, and I will defend this, is Gaston. And the okay. re- and the reason is every other Disney villain uh, from that kind of classic era of the mm-hmm. animated movies always exists in a fantastic space. The idea, you know, Maleficent is a sorceress, and the yeah. evil queen has dark magic, and Ursula is a sea witch, and you know, and I, I and in some Gaston's cases, real. Gaston is real, and Gaston's sheer motivation of villainy is that he thinks he deserves anything he wants especially this woman yeah and so gaston is the embodiment of toxic masculinity oh yes and that's that's an evil that we really can recognize in the world whereas like if you talk about like ursula who i adore ursula is definitely like my fave right because like one she's modeled on divine (laughs) but also like is ursula wrong not really she's just kind of like you know, your dad's kind of an asshole and I don't want to follow the rules. So it's like, I, I get her. Like, definitely. There's, there's also the idea that, um, you, you know, this idea that Ariel is giving up everything for some guy that she has seen for a couple minutes. Like, yeah, and Ursula's, and Ursula's like, you better rethink this. Yeah. <laughs> no, and that, was, and that was sort of, even though we got kind of pop culturally beat over the head with it when it came out, uh, but that was one of the things I really liked about Frozen mm. is that Frozen felt like Disney sort of finally being like, okay, yeah. maybe we yeah. need to address the idea that you shouldn't marry someone you met that week. It's right. like maybe not the smartest thing. Uh, and I thought that it was very smart of them to, you know, decades of fairy tales later say like, or... Yes. Be happy with you. Yes. Yeah. Maybe yeah. reindeer are better than people. Frozen Frozen gets a lot of bad credit because we did get beat over the head with it. Yeah. Um, but it's a very smart movie and it's it's um a very a very particular movie where Disney is kind of like uh poking fun at itself, um and, and kind of twisting their right. whole mythology. The thing that gets me about Frozen though is knowing that it was based on initially based on the Snow Queen, the fairy tale. 
oh, Elsa could have been so mischievous and so so ripe to be a good villainess. Right. But but I understand the changes that they made and the twists that they made. Um, but yeah, she the idea of who the Snow Queen could have been. Well, similar to Gaston, I guess really the true villain of Frozen is also uh, an evil man. Yeah. And do you know the original Snow Queen story that well? Uh, not very well. I, I I remember reading about it at the time. I'm not as versed in my my fables as I ought to be. <laughs> well, I, I find it interesting. Someone else brought this up, and and looking back on it, it is totally it totally seems very true. I don't know if it was intentional or not, but the original uh, Snow Queen story involves the Snow Queen having this mirror that was given to her by the devil, um, and the mirror shatters, and she has to you know figure out how to put it back together so she um enslaves this guy who comes and does it for her and he's like eternally there because he can't there there's so many different pieces um but the way that the story has been translated into a disney movie uh someone brought up to me that prince hans who is the villain of the movie um spoilers if you haven't seen it but i'm sure you've seen it by now (laughs) so there's Um, that one person that's like (laughs) taking to Twitter right now. How <laughs> dare they? I was waiting for the second one to binge. <laughs> no, but someone brought up the idea that Prince Hans is the mirror um, in Disney's version. And if you look at, at the movie, every scene that Prince Hans is in, he's mirroring the emotion of the other person. So when Anna wants to fall in love, he's mirroring that he's, you know, in love with her. And then when he's in, you know, he finally meets Elsa and Elsa's feeling whatever she's feeling like all kept up and upset because her powers are, that's when he starts to become villainous and he's like setting out to do, um, that's when he starts, we start to see him set out to do bad things. And then that scene uh, in front of the fireplace with him and Anna, where Anna's feeling defeated. That's when he, you know, reveals his, his true self and is like, yes, I'm the villain here to defeat you. So it's interesting that I don't know if it was intentional or not, but Han serves as the mirror from the original, Snow Queen story. Well, you know, I I will we'll give Disney that benefit of the doubt <laughs> that they were planning it out. So I love this far afield adventure into Disney when, in fact, I never actually asked the question I intended to. Oh, sorry about uh, that. Well, no, that <laughs> you that, get me talking about Disney. Like I I that was my first love for a long time. But that's how I do. I love. That's the whole thing that I love about uh, sitting with different artists and creators and filmmakers and and writers is that we do have these kind of adventures into Mm -hmm. passions. That's what, you know, that's what makes this all worth it. Uh, (laughs) But one thing I was like, what I was saying when I brought up the, uh, the dragginess of Disney villains is that um, one thing I always like to ask comics creators Mm -hmm. whenever they're on, and you probably heard me ask other comic creators this as well. Do you think that superheroes are a form of drag. This question is only reserved for comics creators when they're on. So, <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, they're putting on a different persona. I mean, there's always that that alias, like we know the the Bruce Wayne and the Clark Kent as being mild mannered or whatever, and then right. you know they put on these costumes and go out and do their job. That's you know. That is drag. <laughs> it is, and you get to be like a heightened version of yourself. Yes. Yes. I always say that Bruce Wayne is boring, but Batman's like, he's alive. It's true. It's true. And and a lot of of comic people that I know will will um look at Bruce Wayne and Batman in the the way that Batman is the actual man and Bruce Wayne is the mask. Um, which is a whole different take on that. But yeah. but yeah, it's a, it's interesting. But it, you know, either way, he's still putting up a front or or not necessarily a front, but um as far as it pertains to drag, he's definitely putting on a show for right. for one of them. See, and I think that's an interesting read uh that makes more sense for Superman. Superman mm-hmm. Is Superman is Superman, Superman, but the drag is Clark Kent, right? Right, and the and you know not to borrow from Tarantino because we know he did this and Kill Bill in this conversation, <laughs> but the idea is is that Clark Kent is what Superman thinks people are, right? As opposed to, I think that that Batman is the drag and Bruce Wayne is the real person because Bruce Wayne's sole motivation is this sorrow that drives him, and Batman is a manifestation of that. True. Uh, True. But the 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 I think the idea they were getting at is is Bruce Wayne as the millionaire playboy right. is definitely an act, um, and that's that's like there, there's almost like three characters within the Bruce Wayne Batman duality because right. you have 
actual Bruce Wayne who created Batman because he wanted, you know, to be a protector because of his parents. And then you have Batman who is the protector. And then you have Bruce Wayne, the millionaire playboy, playboy who yeah. is a front so that people don't see actual Bruce Wayne as Batman. So there's there's a lot going on there. He's a complex layers. Dude. <laughs> or as we call it in the drag world, reveals. <laughs> <laughs> and that is the Drag Race Season 12 finale. <laughs> um, oh, man. Uh, what an adventure. Uh, so we know that the horror anthology is coming out soon. Yes. And you've got some appearances coming up at Comic-Con, uh, perhaps elsewhere, uh, FlameCon. Uh, What's next? What are you working on beyond that? Or is the focus just getting the anthology done at the moment? Right now, the focus is getting the anthology done because we're we're there. We're like almost there uh, with anthology. So that's what I'm I'm really working on a lot right now. Um, after the, the anthology is done, I'm definitely going to get into the Goth Queen um, update mm-hmm. revamp that I kind of want to do um, and and work out some of the kinks that are with that original story um, updated a bit. And then I'm also working on another horror comic that was. Um, it was originally going to be a Japanese horror-related comic um, because I'm really into... I love Japanese horror movies. Wait, do you like Japanese horror comics? I do, yes. Do you, you read Junji Ito? Oh, I loved... I almost wore a Junji Ito he- shirt here today. Um, I love Junji Ito. I'm a huge fan of Junji Ito. Yes. Uh, he's, like, he's someone that I want American uh, readers to discover more because I think his brand of horror is so horrifying. Yes. He's one of the few horror creators that still kind of like gets under my skin. And he can he can turn anything into horror. Like I don't know if you've read Yan and Moo. Have you read that one? No. So it's it's his personal diary of adopting two cats and it's just him talking about the two cats that he's adopted. Um, but... It's horrific. <laughs> the way he views these cats are like they're little demons and they, they do these, you know, they who else would get up in the middle of the night and run around crazy but a demon? So the way he presents it is is very horrific and it's beautiful. It's wonderful. There's a, there's a short story of his that's like about a field of like kids who are buried to their waist and they're yes. like trying to get out and it's like the adults are trying to pull them out. Their torsos just keep getting longer <laughs> and longer. And you think it seems like it should be like a Three Stooges like routine. Right, right. But the more you read it, you're like, this is horrifying yes. <laughs> it's yeah he's he's definitely one of the the people uh one of the creators that i was looking to as inspiration for this japanese horror comic that i'm working on um but i i found that as a as a black american guy i was getting very much into like I, i'm I, this idea of appropriation um that comes up in media uh i don't want to be a part of it. Like I always speak out on it so much that it, it started to feel weird for me to be telling the story of, you know, set in Japan and, and of Japanese people. Right. Um, that I was I was doing so much research to make sure that I got it right that I felt like I was never going to be good enough for it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I decided that the story is not actually um, that I want to tell is not actually based in Japan. It's going to be a fictional world that has um, a lot of, of cultural borrowing from everywhere so you know everyone can be included because that's another thing is that i as a black guy i need to be telling more black stories like i so now i can i can open up this story that i'm i'm working on to be more grand and and inclusive um but it's it's about a cat who has um nine tails and is roaming the countryside and comes into um these uh horrific situations and every time he's in a situation he loses a tail and it it you know mm-hmm. has to do with why he has nine tails what it all means what's happening um so it's an anthology comic but but this cat roaming through these stories connects it all together right and you would be the only writer of that i would be the only writer of it yes well that's exciting yeah i, I love a I love a spooky cat tale. <laughs> me too uh well actually before we go one last question uh all of these things we're discussing, the different forays into the world of, of writing and art that you do, is there something that you haven't done yet that you want to? Um, yes. I can't think of it at the moment. <laughs> but there's there's always. I mean, there, there's. 
I, I feel like I'm just really getting my footing into what I do. Um, so there's there's a lot that I I feel like I want to. I guess I guess what I would say is I I want to collaborate more. Mm-hmm. Um, I have so many stories that I I think that I can write more stories than I can draw. Um, and as I've been collaborating on this anthology and also with my partner Dave. Um, it it just seems like a lot of fun to to be able to write and have another artist, you know, kind of interpret my writings. Um, so I think I want to do more of that. Well, I look forward to seeing how that manifests. <laughs> uh, William, thank you for being on the show today. Where can people find you? Oh, you can find me at williamotyler.com um, is where, you know, that's the base of, base of all of my things. The Cinephilia webcomic is on Patreon. You can read it for free at patreon.com slash cinephilia. Um, but, you know, if you want some bonus stuff, there's plenty of, of rewards if you, you don't want to just read it for free, and I would appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, any, any social media, I'm pretty much at William O. Tyler. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank I you for having it. me. Listeners, please uh, check out William's comics and keep your eyes open for Theater of T- Terror, Revenge of the Queers, as well as uh, if you are at San Diego Comic-Con International, check him out on the Black and Queer panel, as well as the Queer Horror panel and say hello to him and me. We'll both be there. And uh, thank you, thank you. And just keep your eyes open for more from this amazing artist. Thank you, thank you. I'm Michael Verratti. This has been Dead for Filth. Yours always in glam and gore. Good night and good luck. Dead for Filth is a Reverie original podcast, executive produced by Aaliyah J. Daniels, LaShawn McGee, Chris Rodriguez, and Damian Pelliccione. The show is produced by Drew Phillips and sound engineered and edited by Josh Perkins. Download the Reverie app and use the code FILTH for 25% off your first three months. <laughs>